Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hey there. <laughs> Hi. Um, I think we should issue maybe a, a forewarning that this could be a rather melancholy podcast based on today, the last 10 days. Uh, yes, I'm heartbroken and enraged. Yeah. And um, dispirited. Um, I don't know where you were. You know, we, we, we all have these points in history that stand out, like where you were when Kennedy or Martin Luther King was shot, uh, where you were when the Challenger blew up or when, whatever, these pivotal moments in history. And I would say that over the last, well, when George Floyd was murdered, and then the shooting since then, which I'm going to reference in a minute, something that Diana Butler Bass wrote. Mm, I see um, that. I'm feeling hopeless about it, Holly. Yeah. I mean. Me too. Um, I, th- I think the coach of the Golden State Warriors, whose name I cannot recall right now. Yeah. I think his statement deserves widespread. You sent it to me. I'd already seen it by the time. It, uh, it, it deserves widespread hearing. And, and that is, uh, when is enough enough? And, and I think that our politicians on the, the right um, are blocking because they're beholden to the gun lobby. Uh, they're blocking any meaningful legislation to do anything about this. So uh, as tragic as Uvalde was, as tragic as the Buffalo shooting was, it's we're going to have another one next week or today or tomorrow that they're just coming. Yeah. Um, Steve Kerr is the coach of the Warriors, and he is a, you know, his, I, I don't follow sports as closely as Josh does, but he shared with me that Steve's um, father was assassinated in Beirut. Um, some years ago, I think when Steve Kerr was in college by a gunman who didn't like what he was doing. He was the president of the American University in Beirut. And so he has really personal strong feelings about gun control, but it also is just indicative, I think, his fatigue. He got up and walked out of that space and said, I'm, I'm done. And I think that what you just pointed to, the kind of where were you moments, where were you when, um, these all bleed together. And so we don't even have space to think about where was I when 19 children got shot? Uh, you know, I mean, because it bleeds together with the Buffalo shooting, it bleeds together with uh, salon shootings in Dallas and California. It bleeds together with so much that We don't even have a moment to commemorate one violence until the next one happens. So 
I want to back up a little bit. When um, you and I were teaching together regularly, George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. Do you and know, actually, I, pause today, two years ago, today, George Floyd was murdered. Oh, I didn't know that. I mm -hmm. didn't know that was the anniversary. Today was the anniversary. Mm -hmm. So I've not gone back to look at what we did. But as you said recently, and this sounds so self-serving and inflated, we did some good stuff. <laughs> and we're, we're going to do good stuff. We're going to keep doing good stuff together. But um, I think that Sunday we kind of took a turn and addressed that directly. And um, you have a perspective on racial justice that I don't have because of your marriage and all of that. But one of the things that both of us said was that, that this reflects who we are as a country. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I got some pushback about that, about people saying, no, 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 we're better than this. We're Yeah. No, we're not. Yeah. And I, I, I intend to say that Sunday, I will say directly, I've already written this. I wrote this before the shooting. I wrote mm. it in light of the Buffalo shooting to say, mm. this is who we are as a country. Yeah. You who are listening to that are not like this because the demographic of people who listen to this podcast or who come to Ordinary Life are people who are more educated. I don't mean that to sound elitist, but they're, the people who are in Ordinary Life reflect the values of wanting to do better and knowing that there is something deeply, deeply flawed about the way that our country is being run and that this is a reflection of who we are when we have a governor in the state of texas who brags about the fact that anybody over 18 can openly carry any firearm without a license or being trained that's who we are yeah and that's i can't say these words on the air that's screwed up. Yeah. That is really messed up. It is. And, you know, I think you make the point about who our audience is, and I think for sure that's what we hope. And yet to what degree does this poison infiltrate our, all of our psyches? You know, to what degree are we all um, becoming complacent or used to? a certain amount of violence, you know, we, um, we go immediately into that's not who we are because it is so hard to face the reality that it is. I it heard the I, I, I heard the teacher of ordinary life. One of them say years ago that we're in the grips of this, of three real destructive shadow archetypes. And one of them is the belief in redemptive violence. And it, yeah. it's, it's got us. It's got us by the Kohanis, and we're. It's just so. It's just so um, sad. It's just so sad. Yeah. And uh, I, I started uh, listening to a book today uh, about the end of democracy, mm. and um, I never thought in my lifetime we would even have that question raised. Mm. I never thought 
that we would be looking at the fact that in light of even the Buffalo shooting, yesterday's shooting hadn't had time to influence the primary yesterday. Right. But we've taken even a further lurch to the right. Ken Paxton will be the representative for the Republican Party again. It, it's that man has been gross. charged with three felonies. Yeah. There, there was one Republican who, um, and, and I am not here to be partisan, but I think that the dangerous piece of the Republican Party right now is that it's aligning itself with far-right extremists. And I don't know how they're going to get out from under that. Because speaking out loses value with, the, with your voting base. So people have become complacent. I'm not suggesting that Democrats are less complacent. It, that's not true either because we can't manage to pass legislation on that side either. But it is, it, it's just so devastating that, the, that to me, there's some clear things being written on the wall. And, and yet out of what sense of, I don't know, narcissism? Um, out of what sense of self-hatred? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what's playing at the forefront. What sense of denial? There's, there's something I'm worrying, working with is that I, I read a paper the other day about the idea that um, a culture of whiteness, so this is not individual white people, but our culture is one that has been influenced by whiteness and white supremacy, suffers from a pervasive primitive narcissism. In other words, that we can't see that there are others around us, that we continue in a culture of whiteness to think that it is only about this myopic view that, that the culture of whiteness has taught us that one thing matters and that's individualism, it's individual rights, it's our right to you know, personal sovereignty and our right to fight back when we feel we've been stepped on. And I mean, I'm so, so I'll read to you. Um, I read this in an article this morning you know, now they have, yesterday we thought it was 12 children that were killed. It's 19 plus two teachers. So that's 21. And when asked what he thought about this issue, the congressional representative of Uvalde, whose name is Tony Gonzalez, a Republican, he told CBS this morning, I'm happy to debate policy, but not today. When asked about his voting history on gun control legislation, Gonzalez, who entered office at the beginning of 2021, voted against the bill that enhanced federal background checks that was passed by the House in March 2021. So today he gets to say we're grieving. Our hearts are broken. We send thoughts and prayers. But he enabled this. He's part of enabling this. Right. I mean, there's just something really sick operating, really, really sick. And I too, I just feel, I asked my oldest son today, I said, do you ever just, we talked to them about this shooting yesterday briefly. Um, I said, do you ever feel just hopeless and sad? And he said, yeah. And I asked him what made him feel hopeless and sad. And he said, humans. And I said, do you ever feel hopeful and courageous? And he said, yeah. 
I said, what makes you feel that way? He said, I don't know. I guess, I guess love. <laughs> mm. And I asked him, do you know which one wins feeling hopeless or hopeful? And he said, no, I don't know which one I feel most. He's 12. And this is not a kid who's like a sad, dreary kid, you know? And I, I just, there, I know there were so many mothers and fathers who, and grandmothers and guardians who dropped their kids off at school today and just wept in the car. Yep. Well, Holly, I don't want you to get inflated from this, but your children have two really great parents. And those, you and Josh, who reflect the values that you do. I mean, I know that you refer to him as your cathedral, this, you know, gorgeous, massive guy who um, just seems to be able to absorb what is around him with equanimity and fairness and justice. So your kids are picking up on that. And so they're lucky. Not all children have this. I think about the, the, the boy turned 18 who committed this crime. Um, we know nothing at the moment about his background. He was not living with his parents. So there's got to be some story there. Mm -hmm. uh, we just don't know what it is. And he was acting out of some sense of incredible rage. Yeah. Um, to want to commit suicide this way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure that, that was that individual piece is operating, right? Like that his own inability to soothe or to take care of himself in other ways. Um, but this issue is much deeper than individual mental illness. You know, this issue oh, is yeah. a pervasive psychosis. Um, we, we as a nation have a psychosis about guns. Yeah. There is no way around this. It's a, that's a, we are psychotic as a country. Yeah. This is who we are. That's my point. Yeah. We are just, we are men as a, if our country were a person, we would say this country is deeply mentally disturbed. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now I got, before we ring off, I don't <laughs> know what your agenda is. I've got two points and then, and you can stop me on the second one because it's kind of long. Um, <laughs> I got a very gentle challenge about three months ago in class from people who were very faithful to ordinary life. And it just came up to me. It, 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 I don't remember what had happened in the outer world, but they had said, in light of what's going on, would you, would you address again this moral obligation you feel we have to be happy? Hmm. And especially in light of something like this, it seems ludicrous, I know. But I'm going to borrow heavily from a Jewish friend of mine. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when I first came up with the principles of ordinary life, I don't know what was going on in my body, head, mind, about something then. That was over 20 years ago. And I had taken four years off, as you know, to do stuff, and, and I came up with it. So it's, one of them was, we have this moral obligation to be happy. And over the years, I've kind of regretted saying that. I wish I'd used another word than happy. 
But I did, I said what I said. Okay, fast forward to this book that I've referred to before, which is a series of conversations between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. It's called The Book of Joy. And <clears throat> I think it's one of the only books that I've read in one sitting because I was trapped on an airplane flying back from Rome to Houston. Um, <laughs> But I read it in one sitting, and both these two men, who could not be more different religiously and theologically, but are the same spiritually, agreed that the solution to our problem is education. Mm -hmm. And the primary education that we need, and this is where I'm quoting my Jewish friend, is that we are all images of the sacred. Yeah. And what my rabbi friend said, when those people were murdered <clears throat> in Buffalo, somebody murdered the image of God. Heck yeah. Yeah. We're poking holes in this like sacred blanket of reality. You know, we are all right. from the same singularity, the same source. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's. And if we could get that. Yeah. Um, do Is it my turn to respond to what you just said? Or do you want to make point number two? <laughs> point number two is so long it will take us into tomorrow. Well. Yeah, you respond. Well, it's just, it's interesting as you were speaking. I, um, you know, we have a moral obligation to be happy. Okay, so there's that. I think right now we have a moral obligation to be enraged. And to grieve, to lament. And grieve and to lament, to tap into that rage and the form of grief that we are separate, that we have rendered ourselves separate from, from the ground of our being, from one another, from love. Um, I've been, you know, I've, I've been writing, as you know, have I mentioned this? I'm writing a dissertation. Um, <laughs> and, oh, no, uh, I didn't know that. and I just finished part one and part two is really about an exploration of can radical love help us to heal. And I'm starting by going sometimes when we're overwhelmed by the particularities, it can be helpful to zoom out and, and to look at the reality and reality tells us that we are from this same singularity every single thing that exists in this moment came from the same tiny speck, right? So I'm going to read you something that is so unpolished. I haven't proofread it, but it's my sort of musing off to the side of part of my dissertation. It feels like a Herculean effort to explore the possibilities of love through the reality of overpowering grief. Holding tension between love and grief is our precise challenge. And it is in this tension when love proves its nettle. I believe in love as the ground of our being because I have been moved by it, because love has moved through me. I've been arrested by an ineffable force that makes me weep when I drink in my son's faces, gasp when I watch a caterpillar spin a cocoon, laugh when I watch my puppy spin circles around her tail, and wail when another child, aunt, sister, mother, grandmother, son gets shot. 
I know that I feel what love isn't because I have also felt what love is, and yet it feels impossible and potentially naive to write through the possibilities for it when it seems we are on an irreversible downward spiral of pain and suffering and senseless violence. I thought of the Buddhist cone about the tigers and the man and the cliff with the strawberries hanging off of it. As the man hangs on to a vine that keeps him from plummeting to his death, as tigers circle above and below him, a mouse chews the vine to which he clings. Just as it tears away, he reaches for a ripe, sweet strawberry growing from a crevice in the cliff. His last moment is encapsulated by a burst of juicy freshness warmed by the sun in his mouth. I hope we choose the strawberry every time. I love that. Thank you. And yet, I'm wondering, does choosing the strawberry, that moral obligation to be happy, what is it changing? It doesn't change the circumstance of the tigers, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I got this in the mail yesterday, or maybe it was this morning. This morning is when I got it. Diana Butler Bass, did you mm, get it? I did get it, yeah. Is it okay that I read part of it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and those of you who are listening who want the whole, we do we will not have time to read the whole thing. Yeah, it's long. Um, but it is it's worth looking up. Yeah. I'll, I'll put a link to this particular one. In oh, our can you do video. that? Yep. Yep. So I want to read to you what she said and just start the list. Right. The, she sent this thing out today called The Risk of Prayer. And for those of you who don't know who Diana Butler Bath is, she is um, considered by many to be the current best synthesizer of religion in American life. She's written a number of books. She's not a religious scholar. She's a historian. But she her, her interest is in the history of religion. And she grew up in and evangelical conservative maybe fundamental church she's got that background she writes about in one of her books and um now she's not that she's best buddies with brian mclaren who's made a similar journey from fundamentalism to a more much more open position mclaren's recent book is should i stay or should i go mm. about being christian it's not released for the public yet but it's out there. Anyway, Diana Butler Bass uh, was here recently, and um, since then I started subscribing to the paid version of her The Cottage, and this is what I got today. It's called The Risk of Prayer. Thoughts and prayers are powerful and not just empty mantras. In November 2018, following a massacre in Thousand Oaks, California, bishops united against gun violence, an activist group of bishops in the Episcopal Church offered a, quote, litany in the wake of a mass shooting, end quote, to commemorate the dead, to comfort their loved ones, and to honor survivors and first responders. Since then, they're regularly and sadly updated the litany. I tweeted it tonight in rage and sadness. 
listening to the news about the massacre of little school children in Uvalde, Texas. Merely tweeting it was an act of defiance, prayer, lament, and empowerment. I strongly encourage you to pray the entire thing, which we're not going to do because it's long, but it can really mean something. If those thoughts and prayers reveal the extent of evil and break our hearts with the love and sorrow of God, in lament and litany, we can discover we have the power to act. And then she goes on to urge whoever reads this to make it available in church services and other things. Um, I'm debating about how to use it Sunday, but um, it begins, God of peace, we remember all those who died in incidents of mass gun violence in this nation's public and private spaces. And this, then she goes on to list. Wisconsin Seat Temple, Aurora, California Movie Theater, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Santa Monica College, California, and it goes on and on and on for four pages. Yeah. Four pages. And that's in the last 10 years and probably doesn't even name all of them. Hmm. You know, the first mass shooting I remember was done from the University of Texas. Uh, Yeah, I was not Um, alive. You know, but I was telling Josh last night, like Kent State, UT shooter. Those are like memorialized in history books. We learn about them as kids. I did. I learned about it in school as kids. None of these will be in history books because they are, they would take up the entire book. Well, and also those who write and control the history books don't want this kind of history in there. That's right. You know where those are published and edited right here in Texas. Hmm. So, you know, we've got this erasure happening because of the sheer volume and immensity of the problem. That the overwhelm is almost erasing the appropriate response. You remember when um, for Victor Frankel, when, when, he, when he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about the numbness that happens as you see body after body carted out, people killed when you know what happens. And that at first it's shocking And then you develop this kind of veneer of denial about it because the system can't process that shock every moment, every time. So we have abnormal reactions to abnormal circumstances. And I think that's where we are. We're in this place where we have abnormal reactions to incredibly abnormal circumstances. Right. Yeah. So uh, here's an aside. You've heard me say before, I've been so lucky about having good teachers. Yeah. When I came to Houston, one of my primary goals in coming to Houston was to get involved in clinical training. That's a whole other story about how that's evolved over a long period of time. The first textbook we were assigned was Man's Search for Mm -hmm. Meaning. It had just been published. And um, that's what they thought we young psychologists needed. And boy, were they right. Years later, I went to take a course in the Man's Search for Meaning, taught by one of the two people on the planet that Victor Frankl physically gave his legacy to 
and said, I'm picking you to carry this on the United States. You pick somebody else on in, in Europe to do it. And that man was my teacher mm. for the work of Victor Frankel on logotherapy. Yeah. Here's the kicker. He was confined to a wheelchair. Mm. Wow. And he was an embodiment of Victor Frankel's logotherapy teaching about there's we have a choice mm -hmm. in every circumstance to choose how we will react. And in this circumstance, our choice is not to keep our mouth shut. Yeah. But to scream and stamp our feet and weep and wail. And I cannot imagine as a parent of two, a grandparent of two, I cannot imagine the anxiety that parents all over the country today have putting their babies in cars and buses and taking it. Yeah. Yeah. Not the happiest podcast we've ever done, Holly. No, but it's what is. <laughs> and it part is of is. part of embracing the moral obligation to be happy is embracing what is. That's true. I gotta do work to redeem that phrase. All right. <laughs> I need to go. All righty. Thank thank you all for listening and uh, go out there and shout and scream and yell and lament and tear your clothes or in, sit in sackcloth and ashes because it's time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. See, See you next week. <laughs>